This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 24th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. When the Supreme Court spoke on the subject of police searches of mobile phones incident to arrest, they spoke clearly and with one voice. Get a warrant. Cato Senior Fellow Jim Harper discussed the twin cases of Riley and Worry at Cato's Constitution Day held last week. The Riley decision is based on two cases that, that I, uh, I thought was interesting were argued separately, Riley and Worry. Uh, Riley, the one that the, that the uh, opinion was issued under, was the case uh, of an individual in California who was properly arrested uh, with a, a smartphone in his possession. It's a given in the case that he was properly arrested. The smartphone in his possession, law enforcement accessed and saw information that led them to believe that he was a gang member. Further investigation based on that, on that information uh, caused, caused uh, further charges to be le- leveled against him. And upon conviction, he challenged the use of the cell phone data uh, in gathering that information for those, for those further charges. Worry was a different case in which uh, another man, properly arrested, uh, had a flip phone. And the flip phone had, as flip phones do, quite a bit less information. But the, the flip phone's ringing displayed uh, a, 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 an image, displayed the text, my house, and opening the flip phone enabled law enforcement to access the telephone number that correlated to my house, and then using a reverse lookup service, uh, find out what house that was, go to the house, uh, further investigate where they found further incriminating materials against worry. My suspicion is, and, and, it, and it would have followed the typical pattern, that these two cases were argued separately on the premise that there might be different outcomes in the two cases. Perhaps you could certainly, ahead of, ahead of time, you could certainly envision that one case, the smartphone case, might reflect a constitutional intrusion because of the vast amount of data that, it, that is on a smartphone. And the flip phone case may not have. And it would have been a very, very interesting line drawing exercise if the court had come to the conclusion that one was, a, one was an illegal search and one was a legal search. I think they set themselves up originally for that possible outcome. They didn't come to that conclusion, though. And it was a unanimous uh, opinion uh, combining the two cases in the Riley decision. The issue area being explored, of course, was the search incident to arrest doctrine, which some of you may remember from law school, and a few of you who have been defendants may know about it more intimately. Uh, the, 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 the basic doctrine is laid out by the Chamel decision of ni- in 1969. In that case, if, the, if I recall the facts correctly, a person was arrested in his home, and law enforcement used the fact of the arrest in his home to search quite broadly within the home for, for whatever interested them. Uh, the court found that that was not an appropriate search, that the appropriate search incident to arrest uh, rests on, on uh, two rationales. One is a search that will ensure the safety of the officers, so a search for weapons on the person, a search for weapons nearby, other instruments, removing instruments from an individual who might try to use them to elude uh, law enforcement to escape. The other is the likely loss of evidence. If you leave evidence with a defendant, with a, with a, a suspect, uh, they could try to destroy the evidence. They could try to eat it, throw it away, step, you know, step on it, crush it into the ground, whatever it may be. And so it's perfectly uh, reasonable under the Fourth Amendment to search uh, a, an arrestee in the interest of gathering evidence. Perhaps the apex of the uh, search incident to arrest doctrine was a case called Robinson in 1973 uh, from which the container doctrine arose. Robinson was arrested, to to give you some local flavor, was arrested at 8th and C Street Northeast, 
just a few blocks from where I live now. It's a better neighborhood now. Uh, and, and he was arrested for a, for a driving infraction. And in the course of the arrest, they patted him down, found a cigarette pack uh, that was crumpled up in his shirt pocket. Uh, no chance whatsoever that a crumpled cigarette pa uh, pa uh, pack in the shirt pocket could have any further evidentiary uh, uh, use with regard to the arrest. But nonetheless, law enforcement officers searched the crumpled pack, found heroin capsules inside, and arrested Robinson. The court approved that arrest on a broad search incident to arrest doctrine. And since then, in subsequent cases, it started to pair back. Uh, cases where uh, law enforcement had searched a, 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 a large trunk, a luggage container that was, that was proximate to the, to the arrestee and so on and so forth. So there's the search incident to arrest doctrine and container doctrine. The argument on the government side was that a cell phone, a flip phone or a, or a smartphone uh, is, a, is equivalent to a container. It happens to contain a lot of information, but it's roughly the same as a small parcel or item you might carry on your person. The court said no. And again, combining the two cases, said the following. I'll just read the penultimate uh, paragraph from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' decision. Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all they contain and all they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life, citing to Boyd, 1886, a major uh, case about the home. The fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his hand does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple. Get a warrant. Now, I like that quote. I think that's a fascinating, clear quote. And I think it was an affirmative choice on the part of Justice Roberts and perhaps other justices working with him on the opinion. Uh, I, like that. I like that outcome. I like that language. And, and I like the unanimity of the opinion, which still is, is quite rare with the court. But in my opinion, that the outcome in the case and the, and the language provides a direction, but not a path for Fourth Amendment doctrine in future cases. In his article, Andrew Pincus goes through many of the same cases that I would. Uh, the Kelo decision, K-Y-L-L-O, not K-E-L-O, the property rights decision, in 2001, in which Justice Scalia found that the use of a thermal imager to survey the side of, of a home and discover heat waves emanating from it was a search. The Jones case, uh, more recently, just a few years ago, found that attaching a GPS device to a car and using the fact of that GPS device being attached to the car over a period of four weeks to collect 2,000 pages of information about where that car has been is a search. Pincus went into the Maryland v. King case, which is a, a not, such, not so much a search case, but a case about the, the privacy consequences of gathering DNA evidence from arrestees. Uh, and, then, and then this case, Riley and Worry, its companion case, the check of a, of a cell phone properly taken from an arrestee, uh, its contents, and that being a search. Uh, I think you take direction from that, but certainly in the Riley case, I don't think we got any further elucidation of what doctrine the Supreme Court will use in the future with the Fourth Amendment. It's notable, I think, that in the Kelo decision, Justice Scalia did not rely on the reasonable expectation of privacy test that comes from Justice Harlan's concurrence in uh, Katz versus United States, 1967. Neither was the reasonable expectation of privacy test uh, used in the Jones case. And here in Riley, 
The court did not rely explicitly on the reasonable expectation of privacy test, though many, many commentators uh, assume that the basis of the test was the reasonable expectation, or the, the basis of the outcome was the reasonable expectation of privacy test. That test, I've written several times and say every chance I get, uh, is a backward test. It, it reasons backward from expectations to constitutional protection, and it doesn't work. Most people know that it's circular, that uh, in, in the modern era, there's a sort of battle going on. What are our expectations with regard to modern communications? Well, if the government can pound down on them far enough, then they get to access them constitutionally. Whereas if we convince ourselves that we do have privacy, then we get constitutional protection. That's, uh, that's no basis for constitutional decision making. The path that I argue for and have argued for in briefs to the Supreme Court uh, is to really follow the inspiration of Terry versus Ohio. That's the very familiar case uh, that was decided just shortly after Katz, in which law enforcement is spying a couple of shady characters looking like they're doing shady things. Uh, law enforcement officers seized them briefly, searched them, and found a gun. Terry versus Ohio ratified that. More importantly than the outcome was the fact that the, the Terry court explicitly noted the existence of a seizure and then explicitly noted the existence of a search. The, the seizure was stop here, you don't go anywhere. The search was the padding, and the feeling of a hard object against the hand was the search that revealed the existence of a gun. If Fourth Amendment doctrine is to be administered well, I think the Supreme Court should return to Terry-like decisions and follow as closely as possible the actual text of the Fourth Amendment. Do not use reasonable expectation doctrine to reason backward from expectations to constitutional protection. Rather, courts should ask first, was there a seizure? I ask first about seizures, though the phrase is search and seizure, because very often searches are preceded by a seizure. Was there a seizure? That's the taking of some property right, however small. And the Jones case is a good illustration of the taking of a very small property right. The attachment of a of a small, even a small lightweight GPS device to the underside of a car, converts that car to law enforcement's purposes. It violates even a slender read of that narrow right to exclude that's at the center of property rights. Things that are yours are yours for any reason and every reason, and someone else can't come along and claim they have a better reason why they should take these things. It's the essence of property rights, the right to exclude. In my brief to the court on that case, I cited Tony Honore, the sort of the legal philosopher who goes more deeply into the incidents of property that are so important. Was there a seizure, even a small seizure? We can talk about whether or not it was reasonable. And the way I think about it, there can be reasonable seizures when they're, when they're small enough, when their consequences are minimal. More importantly and more directly, was there a search? And more often cases deal with whether, whether or not there was a search. In the Kelo case, using a thermal imager to make things visible that were un otherwise invisible to law enforcement using Outre technology was a search. Law enforcement were standing on public property. They didn't invade uh, a property right by walking onto to Kilo's land. But they used a high-tech device to take things that were otherwise not perceptible and make them perceptible. That's searching, almost literally. And like some kind of fool, I often cite Black's Law Dictionary to the Supreme Court of the United States because I believe they should stick to natural language as best they can to administer the law well. 
The final question, and the question where the judging must happen, is was the seizure or search reasonable? There can be reasonable seizures. There can be re re reasonable searches. Under reasonable expectation doctrine, all the questions are usually collapsed together. And the finding of a search, which upsets a reasonable expectation of privacy, is almost always unconstitutional. But follow that path like you're, like you're, like you're implementing a law, a statute as written. Was there a seizure? Was there a search? Was it reasonable? Well, did the court take all of the Cato Institute's advice uh, at, the, at the end of my pen with the, uh, the valuable assistance of, uh, uh, of colleagues here at Cato? Not really. And the, the case, I think, in Riley was notable for the fact that it really, really avoided a lot of the issues that had been raised in past cases. Justice Roberts wrote the opinion where I would have expected uh, Justice Scalia to do it because he's taken so many of these cases over, over recent years. The opinion was unanimous. Justice Alito wrote a concurring opinion that didn't reveal much more. And I suspect that the reason why the case was handled this way is because the court recognizes that matters of Fourth Amendment import and intense interest are coming their way. I speak of the NSA spying cases making their way uh, through the DC Circuit and through the Second Circuit in New York right now. It's a guess based on no knowledge whatsoever. I will stand up here and just, just guess before you that the court determined uh, that it should not tip its hand either way on some of the doctrinal issues that I think will affect the, the NSA spying cases coming their way. Again, uh, November 4th is an important, important uh, date in upcoming because the D.C. Circuit will, will hear uh, argument in the case uh, in, in this jurisdiction. Andrew Pincus's article goes into some of the major issue areas that you can expect Riley and, and, and the previous cases to affect in the near future, and that's valuable reading for folks who are, who are getting into this area. The question whether email is constitutionally protected, the third-party doctrine, which is the argument the government uses to maintain the NSA spying program, would hold that all emails are available to the government without a warrant. And the Warshock case in the Sixth Circuit found otherwise. That may make it to the court before too long. Cell phone location data, a matter of intense interest that you may see Fourth Amendment arguments on soon. And border searches is a very important, very interesting issue application of the Fourth Amendment at the borders. So I commend to you again Andrew Pincus's article uh, thanks for your interest in these issues, and I love to see the idea that we'll tie them all together during the Q&A. Thank you. Jim Harper is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Get your copy of Cato's Supreme Court Review at our website, cato.org.